Well, that's, uh, that's, that's the great St. Augustine's favorite psalm, Psalm 32. And uh, he, had it on his, he had it on his wall, inscribed on his wall, on his deathbed. And he uh, looked at it frequently just to remind himself that, uh, as he put it, the beginning of all wisdom is to know that one is a sinner. And to not forget that, he had that. And I think it just shows that uh, in, in great matters of life and death, that uh, confession is right at the heart of things. This is well illustrated in a movie that I love called uh, Magnolia. I've mentioned it before. And one of the thing, uh, themes of Magnolia is, is dealing with the darkness in our past. And one of the, the lines, one of the taglines of the movie is, we might be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. And there's a great contrast between these two characters, one named uh, Jimmy Gator, talk show host, and then Earl Partridge is another character, two fathers, one who owns up to his past and the other who won't, who can't. And the first one, uh, Jimmy Gator, has uh, abused his daughter in the past. And one day, uh, his wife, Rose, finds out about this. Near the end of his life, and this is the confrontation, Rose says, why doesn't Claudia talk to you, Jimmy? And Jimmy says, what do you mean? And Rose says, I think you know. And Jimmy gets this kind of blank, disoriented look on his face. And he says, maybe, I, I, I don't know. And Rose presses him and says, say it, Jimmy. And Jimmy says, Claudia thinks, I think she thinks that terrible things somehow got into her head that I might have done something. And Rose says, did you ever touch her? And Jimmy pauses and kind of closes his eyes and says, I, I, I don't know. And Rose says, yes, you do. You do know and you won't say. Did you touch her? And he will not confess. He can't bring himself to say it. And her last words to him as she walks away is, you deserve to die alone for what you've done. And he ends his life. And in many ways, that is a dramatic expression of verse 10 where David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And I think the word wicked there could be translated the unrepentant, the one who will not confess, even to the very end. But there's another father named Earl Partridge who has done something also terrible in his past. He has abandoned his wife and his 14-year-old son. Right when he found out that his wife had cancer, he left them and had an affair and never came back. And he had serial affairs, one after another. But on his deathbed, uh, Earl Partridge calls in his male nurse, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he says this. He says, I, I loved her. I loved Lily. I, I cheated on her. And she has cancer. And I'm not there for her. And I have this son, and he's forced to take, to take care of her. And he's only 14 years old, and he has, he has to take care of his mother and watch her die. This little kid and she has cancer and I'm gone and I walk out and I, I can't deal with what I've done. Who, who am I? And Philip Seymour Hoffman immediately finds out who this son is that he had never heard of and he, he contacts the son, um, Tom Cruise, and he, he asks the son to come that his dad is dying. You have one more chance to talk to him. And so Frank uh, T.J. Mackey uh, played by Tom Cruise comes to his father's house and uh, when he gets there and sees his dad, he kind of just steps back. He can't even begin to approach. And he begins to just shake with anger as he moves closer and closer. And um, 
he begins to just scream profanities at his dad, the worst possible language you could imagine, just screaming at him. And his dad has kind of got you know, the breathing tube. He can barely even uh, think or any, he can barely process anything. His eyes are closed. And he just starts screaming and screaming. But then at some point, um, the, uh, the, the anger turns into weeping and just uncontrollable sobbing as he breaks down and hugs his dad and uh, Earl opens his eyes just barely, and Frank looks at him, and he says, Dad, it's me. It's Frank, your son. And uh, the last thing that Earl ever does is to reach out a shaky hand uh, to his, towards his son, and they, they hold hands, and Frank says, I'm here, Dad. I'm here now. Oh, Dad, it's okay now. Jesus, it's okay. I'm here with you. I'm, I'm so sorry. Please, it's okay. It's okay. And he, he dies with his son there crying by his side. And again, in contrast, David says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, trusts in the Lord enough to confess his sin. And those are extreme dramatic examples, but nevertheless, they give you the contrast in this psalm that where David is trying to encourage you all to to confess your sins while there's still time. And I want to talk about two things. Number one is just the curse that that is laid upon us when we stay silent, when we hide our sin and tell no one. And then the second is the blessing of confession and being forgiven. So first of all, silence. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And we know the story that that David was walking on his rooftop of the palace and he looked over and he saw this beautiful woman over his shoulder, and he gave in to his feelings for her, his lust for her, and he called her into the palace, and he used all the power that God gave him as the shepherd of Israel, as the protector of Israel, to violate her. The very one that she thought of as uh, her great king that she honored and adored. And you can imagine her horror and confusion as this was happening. And after doing this, she becomes pregnant, Bathsheba. And when David sees that she's pregnant, he just goes into a deeper place of silence. And his spirit begins to deceive himself. And he starts to cover his tracks. And so he brings home her husband, Uriah, who is a loyal soldier, who is so loyal to David, that although David encourages Uriah to come and sleep with his wife to cover up the pregnancy... Uh, Uriah will not do it. Uriah lays down on the steps outside of David's palace and will not, will not go into his wife because he loves David so much and he loves the troops so much and uh, he couldn't possibly do that. He couldn't possibly experience that pleasure while they're out there fighting. And so David sends him back to the front lines and he tells the general, uh, go towards the city and then pull back at the last second and leave Uriah there to die. And indeed he dies. And for nine months, it says that David was silent and said nothing. There was no confession. There was no repentance. And you can imagine the lies that he began to tell to himself the same way that Jimmy Gator would have. You would think there's no way you could deny that sin, but that's not true. Humans have this amazing ability to begin to justify themselves. And so you can imagine that that David began to say, well, it was just a, it was an innocent look. I couldn't help but see her. My passions took over. Um, She kind of lured me in with the way she was looking at me. It's just my animal instincts. I can't help that. And 
you know, with Uriah, I was trying the best I could to save her honor, and, and I didn't even kill him. The Philistines killed him. And you can just imagine the way that we all do this. We rationalize. We rationalize our sins away. And, and again, David says that while this was happening, his bones were wasting away. And I don't think he knew about osteoporosis necessarily by name, but back then they, they knew that it was happening to people. And uh, if you don't know what that is, your bones become thin and fragile from loss of tissue. And uh, one woman who I read about, um, who was about 29 when she found out she had advanced stage osteoporosis, uh, she broke 13 bones in her body in a couple of years. And she said, I, I couldn't even go outside. I was in such pain. I was on and off crutches all the time. I was depressed. I couldn't do the things that I usually did. And bones wasting away is just where you become brittle and frail all over. Um, just the achiness you feel when you have a really high fever. And, it's, and David said, my spirit became like that. As he's reflecting back on those nine months, he says, I groaned all the day long. At the time, you probably didn't know it. But looking back on it, he realized that he had become a shell of him, his former self. When he used to go out and, and fight the Philistines' army, to, he went out and fought Goliath with nothing but a slingshot. Back then, when he was so confident in God, and he would dance naked in front of the, of the ark of God, and now David is, is withered up and groaning. And he's lost all of his spiritual confidence. And I just wonder if you have been in a place like that where... Uh, you've done things, uh, maybe repeatedly, maybe you're doing them right now, and you cannot tell anyone. You won't even tell God. And, you know, it makes you kind of sleepy and irritable and listless. David says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The kind of exhaustion you get when it's 100 degrees, high humidity, you've been working out in the yard all day, you've been exercising, and you just barely can keep moving. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And you find yourself in such a state where you're overeating and you're grazing on entertainment and you're distracting yourself, binging on Netflix. You can imagine that David's court jester was very busy during those nine months. And it was a cursed time. The cursedness of silence and hiding. And one of the great tragedies of addiction is not just the the drugs or the alcohol or the cigarettes or the food or the lack of food or whatever it is that you're addicted to, the porn. It's not necessarily just the physical consequences of that. I think even more tragic is uh, is the deceit and the broken relationships and the cover ups and the lies and the stealing. The only family I've ever known that had to lock their son out of their house was because of addiction because it was it was just the, the relationship becomes so toxic because of his addiction but it doesn't have to be addiction it can be staying silent about anything it can be the smallest sin and just covering it up over and over and over again it's going to always erode it's going to always erode the closest relationships that you have and it is a choice to stay silent um, you might say to yourself, it's just, uh, I've got to think about this. You know, you're, I'm kind of being convicted right now that there's something I should maybe tell someone, but I need to give it a little bit of time and think about it. And, and that itself is a choice to, 
to not do anything is a choice. It's kind of like a splinter where um, it's got to come out at some point, and it's just going to go deeper if you don't say anything. I used to hate, as a child, getting a splinter because I did not want to take it out then at all, and yet I knew that the longer it was in there, it would go deeper, and it might break off. And in the same way, if there is a sin underneath the skin there, to remain silent about it, it's only going to go down deeper. It's only going to get worse. And that's the first point, is that silence is a curse, and it makes you, David said, it it made him stupid, like a horse or a mule, without any understanding. In verse 9, he says that such an animal had to be curbed by the bit or bridle, like a dog, a really dumb dog that will just go and dart off into the street at any moment. Uh, That's the way David felt like he had become when he would not confess his sins. So that's the first point. The second point is confession. Because even in the silence, uh, as we're closing all the windows and drawing all the blinds, God is lovingly watching over us. It says in verse 8, He will counsel you with His eye upon you. And so, God actually is the one who initiates the confession. And this is really good news that even if, even if the silence is, re- is remaining... Um, even if you're trying to bury something, the promise is that God's hand will, be, will become heavy on you and that he is going to make your life so miserable that you're not going to be able to continue to hold that down. Day and night, verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. That sounds like a punishment, but that's actually gracious. That is God trying to push this thing out of David. Verse 8, I will instruct you, God says to David, And I will teach you the way you should go, namely to ask for forgiveness, to confess. And God's hand became so heavy and his, uh, David's silence became so miserable that eventually in verse 5 it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, which which simply means I agreed with you, Lord, about, about what is true about me. I stopped hiding, I stopped covering up. I just simply let it be known what is real and true about me. This is not anything fancy or elaborate. Uh, This is not a heroic act of introspection. It's funny, a lot of times um, Christians feel like they need to really say something very deep and psychologically penetrating in their confessions um, when, you know, the sin is so obviously right there uh, in front of... Anyone who knows you could see that sin in a second, and yet you're talking about um, something that's kind of... uh, abstruse or abstract or uh, some kind of depth psychology. At our, at our Presbytery meetings, um, we used to confess our sins out loud, and um, it used to always irritate me because it seemed like everybody was trying to outdo each other in having kind of the deepest uh, confession, the darkest confession. Um, I tried to come up with some of the ones, forgive me for stealing glory from you by my fancy prayers. Uh, and I'm not mocking these confessions, I'm just saying you don't have to, you don't have to do this. Uh, forgive me for serving my wife all week just in order to boast in my flesh. Or forgive me for trying to justify myself through my ministry. Um, those are great. But what I'm saying is, um, it's, it's what your, your siblings would know about you. Um, you know, that you get really irritable if you don't get the kind of food you want, or if you get sleepy at night. Um, it's those kind of things that everyone who knows you could tell you in a second. It's right in front of you. That's all you have to do, is acknowledge that. Nothing fancy. But this is very hard. This is very hard. Back in 
2016 on the uh, campaign trail, President Trump, in this very famous or infamous town hall meeting in Iowa, um, he was asked by someone there if he had ever asked God for forgiveness. And Trump, as always, is very honest, and he said, I'm not sure I have. <laughs> I think he had no idea that the audience was going to react poorly to that. I, I, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. And if I do something wrong, I try to make it right. I don't feel the need to bring God into the picture. And, uh, I mean, a lot of pastor friends I have were, you know, kind of howling in indignation. How could he do that? And even, I even saw, like... Uh, television news anchors and radio show hosts, uh, you know, pulling their hair out over the fact that he said that. But what I thought was funny about that was that it's not like confession is the norm in America. I mean, it's not like you see people on CNN or Fox News regularly confessing their sins, or even really pastors or Christians very much. So why all the outrage? I mean, we all try to do that, don't we? We all try to just cover our sins by trying harder. I think that he was absolutely right when he said, I just try to go on and do a better job from there. Um, that's exactly how we want to do things. And, and David says in verse 5, I did not cover, I stopped covering my iniquities with my good works. I would, I would rather do something kind or sacrificial for uh, my, my wife in a, in a heartbeat rather than actually just confessing to her. If I've hurt her, I'd much rather uh, you know, clean a bunch of stuff um, or give her a back rub or something. I'd much rather do that than actually having to say the sin. And that's exactly what Trump's saying. Um, Much easier to cover with your good works. But David says, I I stopped covering. And I I let the Lord cover my sins. So real confession, this is very, very hard. Very, very hard stuff. Um, This is more than sharing your struggles. I've heard that. I've used that phrase myself. This is more than being vulnerable or transparent. Those are good things. But this is different. This is, we're talking about moral evil. Uh, we're talking about something uh, that is wicked. And this doesn't sound necessarily like that, but just rolling your eyes at your spouse um, when they're talking to you or um, walking away from them when they're talking to you or putting your eyes back on a screen or something like that um, when they're trying to get your attention, that's, that's dehumanizing. Um, Undermining your spouse's authority. Uh, those are just things that I, I think of right now in my position in life. And, you know, and if they get upset at you, this, this famous line, I'm so sorry you're upset, I didn't mean to hurt you. That is not confession at all. David's talking about um, real sin here. And that's why he uses the word transgressions in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression, uh, it can also be translated treachery. Or betrayal. So this is what David did to Uriah, a good friend of his. He betrayed him. And this is what we do in smaller ways every day. Even to friends we do this. I, um, a friend of mine sent me this quote today. Um, I won't even try to pronounce the French uh, philosopher who wrote it. But it says this, In the misfortunes of our best friends we always find something not altogether displeasing to us. And so, um, you know, there's a betrayal in that, isn't there? Or being caught gossiping about someone. Have you ever had that happen where you're talking about someone and they're right behind you in the booth behind you? Uh, That's a terrifying experience. Or in a cubicle next to you. Or I had a friend who sent a text message to the person 
They were supposed to send it to this person, about this person. They sent it to that person. Now, when that happens, there's a sickening feeling. Your just stomach drops out. And that is the kind of thing that David's talking about. Treachery. Transgressions. But God says, literally, blessed is the one whose transgression is lifted off. It's lifted off like a huge weight. All the betrayal, um, all the sabotage. Like one of those uh, gigantic cranes, have you ever seen those? Like at Norfolk or Wilmington, a port of call, where they take this 5,000-pound car off of a bed of an 18-wheeler and they put it on a ship, a tanker. God just lifts the weight of all that sin. After uh, this morning, I preached this, this uh, sermon this morning, and a woman came up to me and said, um, I just want you to know that um, I've almost told no one about this, but I had an abortion once, and I... Uh, confessed that to God in the car one time driving down the highway and it was just like a 3,000 pound weight had been lifted off my shoulders just by saying it to God or herself in the car so you don't necessarily have to say these things to other people um, you certainly don't have to tell them that you hate them you know that's that's not necessarily a useful thing to do but um, even telling it to God it just lifts uh, you've been trying to you're suppressing something and it's gone And in case the uh, lifting metaphor is not helpful, uh, David gives us another one, which I find even more powerful. He says in verse 2, Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, that's an accounting metaphor. And you may know the agony of being in in debt, uh, in deep debt, credit card debt, medical debt, school debt, And the terrible thing about debt, especially credit card debt, is that if the interest rate is high enough, even as you try to pay it off by putting aside money each month, it actually is building on you. And so you can get literally just buried in debt. And uh, those people I know who have been buried in debt, it is psychologically really debilitating. And so God is saying, or David is saying, um, God counted my huge debt to be naught. He, He erased it. With a single word, God forgives the entire debt. And he gives you this brand new account. So you go from, you know, deeply uh, in debt to suddenly you're completely clear. And actually, it's not just that. It's, it's more than that. It's better than that. He does say no iniquity, which means sinless, which means your account is zero. But he goes even beyond that. And he says in verse 11... Um, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. So at the end of the psalm, he's actually rejoicing, not only that he's debt-free, but that he is uh, actively righteous. It's kind of astonishing that he would say that, given what's happened in his life, but what he's saying there is, I have perfect righteousness. Just by asking God for forgiveness, not only am I debt-free, but then I have been given this huge account, uh, in the eyes of God, I'm righteous. I know somebody who married a person with a, a lot of debt, and she was actually very responsible, and this debt was fairly irresponsible debt. And she had been saving money and paying off loans and working hard and living frugally in order to uh, get in a good financial place. And she met the person, they had a big debt, and guess what happened when they got married? Uh, all of all of his debt became hers, and all of his, her wealth became his. That's just what happens 
when you're united as one. And guess what happens when you are united as one to Jesus Christ, a God incarnate? Same thing. Uh, this is, it's, it's an amazing kind of financial mismanagement, if you will, on God's part, that, uh, that we would be not only considered debt-free, but spiritual billionaires, if you will. That he looks us as that. Now, just remember what's going on here. I mean, sometimes the gospel seems immoral to me. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've never felt like the gospel is immoral, I don't think you've understood it, because... At times, it should be very, very uh, offensive to you. The ones, the Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests who met Jesus, they understood the gospel and they hated him for it. And Paul was hated for it. And all the synagogues he went to, he was hated for it. The philosophers in Athens, they didn't like it either. Uh, There is something about the gospel that seems actively immoral. I mean, think about David, right? He, not long before he wrote this psalm, he was a despicable sexual predator and murderer. And Bathsheba had been violated and widowed by him. And now here he is, like a year later maybe, saying, I am righteous. You know, I am glad in the Lord. And you just wonder, is, you know, is that okay? That with a word of confession, David would suddenly be singing to God praises like that? It, it seems like morally reckless and excessive and perhaps dangerous, maybe an offense to Bathsheba and Uriah that God would do that. But that's the gospel. And, and they, needed, they also needed forgiveness as much as David did. As hard as that is to say, Bathsheba, Uriah, you, me, uh, we are all major debtors. And we need God to not only count us as having no iniquity, but actually as considering us righteous. And this is without any tears of penance required. This is without any elaborate confession or dramatic introspection. With no need to cover at all. You're going to be tempted to cover with your good works. And God says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to just accept it as entirely a gift from me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be the righteousness of God. And I'll just translate that in accounting terms. For our sake, God counted Jesus, who was a billionaire, to be buried in debt, in order that we who were buried in debt might be counted as billionaires. And it is that exchange that is being dramatized at this table that we're about to celebrate. Um, In some ways, like I was saying about the gospel, this is a scandalous thing that we're doing. And if you're not comfortable uh, with the gospel, then I encourage you not to partake. I don't want uh, anyone to do anything that would violate their conscience. And we, we're so glad, like Austin said, that people come here uh, who, who don't believe in, in what's going on at this meal. We love that. We want you. We're, we want to welcome you again and say, please come back. Um, but if it's still a scandal to you or kind of a stumbling block that doesn't seem to make sense morally that God would do that, then feel no pressure to come up here. And if you do come up here, just know what this is saying about you. Uh, realize what this is saying about you. That uh, you're in, in enormous debt in God's account. And it's saying that with one word of request, with one little tiny confession, the debt is erased and you're given all of the righteousness of Jesus. 
So, you know, if you are offended by some little criticism of you this week, uh, if you have a hard time confessing your sins, just think about what's going on at this table. And uh, let that free you up to be able to confess and to be able to be criticized.